Good morning. How is everyone? We're going to go ahead and get started. Do I sound muffled? <laughs> I guess I could whisper. I want to welcome everyone out and first say Happy Mother's Day. So thankful for the mothers that are here. We want to welcome you to Providence Bible Church's first foundations class. Now what's going to happen over the next eight weeks is each elder will rotate out on Sunday mornings and we're going to present to you a portion of history. Not the history of the first civilizations of the world, but biblical history. History from God's perspective, specifically redemptive history. So the purpose of the foundations class is twofold. Number one, it's to inform you. It's to inform you of what we believe at Providence Bible Church so that you'll know what platform we're teaching and preaching from with the hope, and see, even all of that has the intention of drawing you in to church membership. Prayerfully that you would say, this is the group of people that I want to be with and that I want to build with. Church membership indicates a visible commitment to the person of Christ and to the people of God. Just as baptism is a visible commitment of a new life in Christ, church membership is a visible commitment to a... So, it's just a simply a way of saying, listen, this is the group of people I want to be with. This is the group of people I want to build with. This is the group of people I want to give myself to. And very, very importantly, it's saying, this is the group of people that I want to be accountable with in this specific local church. Charles Spurgeon said the following, <clears throat> I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient. Then he gives the following illustration. There's a brick. What's the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, he goes on to say, it's a brick without a purpose. So if not given to a church, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. The purpose of Foundations class is to draw you into church membership. Now with that being the motive stated from the outset, let's dive into church history from God's perspective. And I have the privilege, and I mean great privilege, of talking to you today about three subject matters. Theology proper, which is the study of God and His attributes. 
Trinitarianism, which is pretty self-explanatory, and Bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning, Lord, and God, as we do, we do so with a state of just reflection for a moment. Recognizing, God, who You are, who You've been, the redemption that You've accomplished in spite of who we are. And God, we are greatly taken aback at the mercy and the grace that You would have toward us, Father. Lord, I pray that this morning we could glean from Your attributes that we could take away just a fragment of truth in relation to the height of Your glory. And that, Father, that would be enough to change our hearts and our minds until we see You face to face. Lord, I pray that we would lean in to truth this morning, God. And that we would be taken aback by a God who is all-powerful and yet choose us to reach out to mere men and women such as us. So we say thank You, Lord, for grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at redemptive history, there are some questions that we desire to answer. There are some questions we want answered. Some of those first questions that we want an answer to is, Who is God? Who is God? What is God's motives? What is God's agenda? What is God's character? What is God's attributes? Theology proper is the vehicle that attempts to answer some of those questions because theology proper is the study of God and God's attributes. Now, when we talk about God's attributes, they're commonly divided into two categories. They're divided into the category of incommunicable attributes, and those are the attributes that are not communicated to man and they are distinct to God only. Then we have the second category of communicable attributes, which are those attributes that belong to God that He communicates to man and shares with us. But it's important to note on the outset that while those attributes reside in man, they are indeed imperfect. Obviously, this is in no way an exhaustive list if we can go back to the incommunicable attributes. Obviously, this is in no way an exhaustive list. But let's look at these briefly. Okay. First, we see God's eternality, which simply means God is eternal. Okay. He has no beginning. He has no end. And we can say, well, we live for eternity too, but we haven't existed since eternity. So in that case, we're unlike God. God is, God is unchangeable. Okay. Unlike us who are prone to change. God is omnipresent. Now, the word omni means all. So God is all present at all times, in all places, throughout all of history, unlike us who are only present in one location at a time. God is sovereign. That doesn't only mean that God is aware of all things, but it also means that God is intricately involved in all of the things and all of the details of our lives. And then we can look at the communicable attributes of God and say, this is, these are the attributes that God shares with us. 
This is the place where I pray that we would be concerned about the purpose of any type of theology. This is the place that I would encourage us to be aware, beware, and guard ourselves against developing a knowledge of God that does not go beyond an indifferent, impersonal, unemotional list of attributes that define who God is. We are made aware of God. We are changed by God. We are challenged by God. We are convicted by God. We are in awe of God because of God's attributes. Not solely through the vehicle of intellectual theology proper, as much as the vehicle of intimate theology proper, if I can say it that way. And let me expound on that if I can. Theology proper is the study of God and His attributes, but that study has a very distinct purpose, and that distinct purpose is to fill our hearts as much, if not more, than our heads with an intimate knowledge of who God is. And it's on the basis of intimate, heartfelt theology proper that we can identify with biblical accounts and biblical people much more than we may initially think. It's on that basis that we can identify with the account of the parting of the Red Sea, for example. So, what happens is, Israel is made aware of the omnipotence of God, okay, as they see and experience Him intimately, as He pours out His omnipotent power and delivers them personally, from the bondage of Egypt. We can relate to that. We can relate to that because we too have seen, we have experienced intimately God pouring out His omnipotent power over our lives as He has delivered us personally from the bondage of sin that once defined us. Intimate theology proper is the place where we connect with the Bible. But it's important that when we talk about the attributes of God, that we keep all of God's attributes in view in the framework or the context of His nature. His nature of love. His nature of justice. His nature of righteousness. Otherwise, for example, when we look at His attribute of sovereignty, see, we can say God is sovereign. God is aware of all things. God is intimately involved in all things. But the moment that we remove God's nature of love, His nature of justice, His nature of righteousness, the very moment that we remove His nature from the reality of His attribute of sovereignty, that's the place where we begin to ask ourselves, what was God's real motive behind what just happened here? Why did God allow this thing to happen in my life? That's why it's necessary to keep His nature in view as we talk about His attributes. For example, let's look at something else. To say that God is omnipotent. Okay, that's to say God is all powerful. He's all powerful over all things at all times in all ways. Now, if we're not careful, we begin to imagine a God who responds with or acts with unsheer, unadulterated power or the power to do absolutely anything. That's why we have to keep this attribute of omnipotence. And bear with me, please. 
we have to keep it in the context of His nature of love, justice, righteous, and mercy. A nature that has an emphasis of His own glory and the good of His people. Because to say that God is all-powerful and that God can do anything is just simply not true. Because God's power is self-restrained to His nature and there are certain things that God cannot do. God cannot do certain things because of His nature of love. He cannot do certain things because of His nature of righteousness. He cannot do certain things because of His nature of justice. God cannot lie. God cannot do evil. God cannot break His promises. God cannot be irrational. God can only do and only has the power to do what is right. And He is never powerful to do what is wrong. And listen, we need to remember that when we see God dropping plagues on Egypt. We need to remember that when we see God flooding earth population. We need to remember that as we see God saying to Saul, wipe out the Amalekites, every breathing thing. We need to remember that. We need to remember that when we see Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. We need to remember that as we hear God speaking through the Apostle Paul and saying, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, before they were born, before they did anything good, or before they did anything bad. We need to remember that in the tough times in our lives. When trouble comes our way. Augustine stated, God is omnipotent, and yet He cannot die. He cannot lie. He cannot deny Himself. How is He omnipotent then? He is omnipotent for the very reason that He cannot do these things. For if He could lie, He would not be omnipotent. The power of God is not diminished when it is said that He cannot die and cannot sin For if He could do these things, His power would be less. So why are His attributes so relevant to redemptive history? Because all of His attributes, and I'm going to suggest all of them, are so intimately intertwined with the redemption of His people that He calls by His name. Let's look at the attribute of the incommunicable attribute of eternality for a moment, okay? Which means God has no beginning, God has no end. Now, do we know that nugget of truth just so that we can hold on to that and maybe it serves as validation of His deity, although it does that? See, what we can't do as we're talking about God's eternal existence, we can't measure God's eternal existence according to time because time didn't exist until creation. Okay, On the first day, that's the beginning of time. So my suggestion is that we not think about God in His incommunicable attribute of eternality on the basis of time, but on the basis of purpose. That we would look at God's eternal existence on the basis of purpose, and my suggestion is His purpose of redemption. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.9, 
He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purposes and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God was so full of purpose as He existed throughout eternity. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Romans 8.29 assures us that He foreknew His elect before the foundation of the world. And the idea is that He knew us with a very personal, very intimate and relational knowledge. How is that possible? The only way that that can be possible if something else redemptive in nature is also taking place before the foundations of the world. We're told in Revelation 13.8, All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Before the foundation of the world God had in view, His Son, Jesus Christ, slain, as well as a people who were purchased by the slain Lamb's blood, and their name was written in a book. So in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, it was simply God's way of implementing the plan of redemption that was determined before the creation of the world. And as we talk about the attributes of God, I want to talk to you about one of the most important attributes of all, and that is God's attribute of being triune. Kevin DeYoung states, If any doctrine makes Christianity Christian, then surely it is the doctrine of the Trinity. I want to state to you something from the outset. If you are here, and you are a follower of Christ you necessarily believe in the Trinity. Now, I'm not saying or suggesting that you've worked all of the logistics out upon your conversion. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you necessarily believe in the Trinity. And if you believe in the Trinity, it is primarily because the Holy Spirit has ushered that truth into your heart and into your mind. If you believe in the Trinity, it is not primarily because you've been able to wrap your mind around the logistics and the movements of God in three persons. There is an element, relevant element of mystery that surrounds the idea of the Trinity, yet it does not lessen its foundational necessity. Trinitarianism, it is the idea that God is triune or three in one, which means God has revealed Himself in three co-equal and three co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem says it this way. We can say that God is one in essence or nature. Let me back up. We can say that God is one in essence and three in person, which means that the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons and each person is fully God and there is only one God. Do you have all that? <laughs> Philippians 1.2 speaks of the Father as God. Titus 2.13 speaks of Jesus as God. Acts 5.3 and 4 speaks of the Holy Spirit as God. Each person being God and each person being distinct in being God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He sent His Son. Which means that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. After Jesus dies, He resurrected, He ascends back to the Father. We're told in John 14.26 that the Father sends the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Father. We're told in Acts 2.33 that Jesus sent the Spirit. So we see that the Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus. Therefore, they are all God and all distinct. Now, I want to suggest that God is distinct, but that He is also plural. When we talk about the idea of co-equality among the persons of the Trinity, when we talk about the idea of being one in essence among the Trinity, it is so important to try to make an attempt to define that as best we can. And the best way that I know to do that is by saying that all of God's attributes are completely true and completely shared among all three persons of the Trinity because all three persons are God. So we can say, okay, God the Father is unchangeable. What we have to say in addition to that is not only is God the Father unchangeable, but so is God the Son unchangeable. So is God the Spirit unchangeable. And that is how each person is fully God. So let's just take into account Genesis 1.26, for example. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let me tell you what's not taking place at that moment. God is not sitting, God the Father is not sitting at the head of a table saying, Hey, I have an idea. Let us do this. And because there's such a level of unity among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Son and the Spirit nod in agreement and say, hey, that's a great idea. Let us be a part of that. That didn't happen. Now, that might be the dynamic of an elders meeting. If all of the elders meet and it's a good day, no one's in a bad mood, and an elder makes a suggestion and everyone says, hey, great idea, let's go forward with that. But that is not a good description of Trinitarian interaction. God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. God said, the Hebrew word for God in that passage is Elohim, and it's used in its plural form. God said, God who? God the Father said, let us do this. God the Son said, let us do this. God the Holy Spirit said, let us do this. God said within Himself, because He's distinct and singular, so God said within Himself as Father. God said within Himself as Son. God said within Himself as Holy Spirit, let us do this. But God not only said within Himself because He is singular, He said among Himself because He is plural. Now, if that's as clear as muddy water, let me try to get Henry Blocker to help us a little bit. As he says of Genesis 1.26, God addresses Himself. 
But this He can do only because He has a Spirit who is both one with Him, singular, and distinct from Him, plural, at the same time. Let me reread that. God addresses Himself, but this He can do only because He has a Spirit who is both one with Him and distinct from Him at the same time. Here are the first glimmerings of a Trinitarian revelation. We were in Africa one time, and we were in a village, and the village chief asked the question about the Trinity. So the gentleman that was with us, and I think Jason and I may have actually been together, the gentleman that was with us, he said, okay, hey, look, can somebody go get an egg? So a little boy runs off, and he gets an egg, and he comes back with this egg, and so the guy that we're with says, okay, this is a great picture of the Trinity. Okay? So he took the egg, he cracked the egg, and of course you have the egg shell, you have the egg yolk, and you have the egg white, all laying there in front of us. And he says, okay, this is a picture of the Trinity. One egg, three different parts of the same egg. Now, based upon what we've just talked about, and I believe this is worthy enough of an issue to be really picky, Based upon what we just talked about, about co-equality, where does that illustration break down? Exactly. That's exactly right. If anything, it shows more disunity. Because you have the shell, but the shell is not at the same time the shell and the yolk. Or the shell and the white. So if anything, it shows disunity because you have the shell that's hard, and the other parts of the egg that are soft. You have the yolk that is yellow, the other parts that are different colors. And I think it is so important to be picky enough to remind ourselves that the members of the Trinity, the Son and the Spirit, they're not parts of God. They are fully God. And I think we have to be picky enough to point that out, which I believe can lead us to another reality that I want to speak about in relation to the Trinity, the complete joy that exists within the Trinity. When we think about God being one in essence, the overarching essence of God's oneness is love. According to 1 John 4.16, the Bible says God is love. When we think of love, oftentimes we think about love in relational terms. In other words, I think about something that has to be before me or someone that has to be before me that I can give love to and receive love from. If we're not careful... We may be tempted to think that God created us or God established redemption because He needed to love someone or because He needed to be loved by us. That's not the picture that the Bible paints for us. Jesus said in John 17:24, Father, I desire those You have given to Me to be with Me where I am. Then they will see My glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Pay attention to everything that is going on before the foundation of the world as God is existing in His eternality. God was love. God was giving love. God was receiving love before the foundations of the world within the community 
of the Trinity. He did not create humanity nor establish or institute redemption because He had any type of need from us. Paul reminds the men of Athens in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, that the God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as though He needed what? Anything. Because He Himself is the one that gives all things. So when we look at creation, or when we look at the redemption of God's elect, know this, it is the result of a love affair that existed within the community of the Trinity, and God by His grace simply decided to share it with humanity for His glory, for our good, not because He had need of anything. And for that purpose, God says, let us make man in our image. I don't think that we can talk about the Trinity without looking at the Trinitarian activity at the cross. Listen, if there was ever a time when you find yourself confused about what God may be doing right now, if there's ever a time when you're confused about who God is, you're looking at your life, you're questioning, is God caring for me? I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to look to the cross and to see how God is interacting with Himself and be reoriented to the true character of God and know that God is good and God is great and God has our best interest in mind. You see, that's why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. We already have a tendency at times to think of the God of the Old Testament as an overbearing dictator. He's a God and He just cares about the rules. He just cares about justice. And He's just enforcing. One political commentator said, the God of the Old Testament is a Republican and Jesus was a Democrat. Which was simply His way of saying the God of the Old Testament is strict, He's firm. And the Jesus of the New Testament, He's just a little more liberal, a little more loving, peace, and everything's, everything's good. The doctrine of the Trinity changes that. Because we do not have a picture of an overbearing, rule-keeping Father who's sending His innocent Son to a cross to die. It's not the picture we have. We have a picture of God killing God. We have a picture of God offering God as a sacrifice for our sin. We have a picture of God spilling the blood of God because only God's blood is enough of an atonement potential to deliver us from our sins. That is the true character of God. And when we look at the cross, we see that redemption is a Trinitarian affair. God the Father sends God the Son. God the Father forsakes God the Son because God the Son has become the recipient of God the Father's wrath. And God the Spirit sustains God the Son until the work of redemption is finished, we're told in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, how much more will He cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? On the cross, God the Son is abandoned by God the Father, but God the Spirit is present. And God the Spirit enables God the Son to offer Himself to the Father till God the Son ascends back to God the Father. And they both send God the Spirit to apply salvation to our lives. 
So when we talk about the Spirit of God enabling the Son of God, that really is the true purpose of the cross anyway. And that's relevant to redemptive history. This is all about God the Son offering Himself to God the Father. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. What's that joy mean, I wonder? I would say yes, beloved. There is indeed a definite joy that comes from the redemption of the elect, but there is another joy for the person of Christ, and I want to suggest this morning that it is chiefly for the glory of God. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26 state that God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood effective through faith. He did this... Okay, so why? Why did God do this? Why did He send His Son as a sacrifice? He did this. God did this to show His righteousness. Why? Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that He Himself is righteous and that He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean? I believe that it means before the cross was for the purpose of our redemption, the cross was for the purpose of God's glory and that is so relevant to redemptive history. Why? Because it tells us, why was the cross before it was for our redemption, for God's glory. Because Romans just told us that in His divine forbearance, He had passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, God has been forgiving people and allowing their sins to go unpunished for thousands of years. Look at King David. Okay, King David committed adultery. He had Uriah uh, murdered. So Nathan approaches David and he gives him this parable or this illustration. He says, okay, David, let's talk about this a minute. A man had a field full of ewe lambs. Another man only had one and he loved it, caressed it, took care of it. It was his very life. And the man who had the field full left those to go to the field where the man only had one and he took it. What should happen to that man, David? And David says, that man should surely die. Do you remember what Nathan said to him? What's that? That's right. He said, you are that man. Now, do you remember what he went on to say to him? He went on to say to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. But wait a minute. It poses a pretty big problem. Where is the justice that David deserves? Because it seems as if the prophecy the Lord's taken away your sin, you shall not die, as if possibly the judgment should have been that he died. So where is the just judgment? Where is the justice in God saying, you're not going to die right now? Romans 3, 25 and 26 suggest that David's justice was found in the cross of Christ. God sent His Son forward as a propitiation for our sins. Why? To show that God is His incommunicable attributes. They will remain intact. They are unchanging. And if 
God says of Himself that He is unchangeable in relation to His justice, and He is unchangeable in relation to His justice. Justice will be met, how? By the cross of Christ. How could you let David escape such punishment? I will be just, and that will be taken Great news. That the cross is indeed a Trinitarian affair. So where do we go to get where do we go to get all this good news? And I'm, I'm actually almost done, guys. I'm going to sum up here. Let's briefly talk about bibliology. Bibliology is the study of the nature of the Bible as revelation. That means as we talk about things like theology proper, attributes of God, that means that there has to be a primary source to gather that information. The Bible is indeed that primary source. The Bible is the way that we gather that information with our minds. It's a pursuit of theology proper intellectually, but the intention is to gather that information and store it deeply in our hearts. So again, the Bible has as its purpose us knowing and learning about God. We believe that we have the books of the Bible that compose the biblical canon. We believe that. And what's that mean? Well, a canon means a long list of books, the books of the Bible that we believe to be inspired by God, that God has sovereignly given us, that we may know Him. The Greek word for canon is defined as a measuring stick. So what that means to us is that the Scripture is, measure, is the measuring rod between all truth and all error. And listen, guys, we have to settle that issue now. We base everything that we do upon the foundation that we believe that the Bible is God's authority to us. Everything. We believe this book over the words of a man. A man comes to us and says, hey, I have a word from the Lord. God said to me this. If that word doesn't coincide with what Scripture says, we have to dismiss that word. Why? Because we have put all of our hope all of our faith and all of our trust in a book called the Bible. And we have to settle right now whether or not we believe that it has the authority of God to guide and instruct every aspect of our lives. I talk to so many people, especially young people, and they're, they're wanting to know how can we believe that book when there's so many different authors and so many possible discrepancies. How, how, how? We have to settle that issue. We have to determine that. We believe that the Old Testament canon is a collection of authoritative words from God recorded by men throughout all of Israel's history as seen in the 39 Old Testament books. We believe that the New Testament canon consisting of 27 books was given to us by the apostles because they had the ability from the Holy Spirit of God to recall Christ and Christ's works. And we have to settle that now. We have to number those books. 
Catholicism adds to their canon different books. Judaism does away with the New Testament. We have to know why we believe every one of these books are inspired to us from God and brought to us from God. Jesus said in John 14, 26, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you as He was speaking to the apostles. As well, the apostles' own writings were recorded as inspired by God, as God Himself taught them through His own Spirit. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. We believe that the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles have the authority to write and pen the Word of God as if it was God's own words to us. One author says, How else could one book that consists of 66 individual books written on three continents, written in three languages over a span of 1,500 years, between 40 different authors of different backgrounds, how else could it be one unified book with no contradiction from beginning to end unless it was completely inspired by God? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you, believers. And because of that, we believe that we have the exact inspired canon of Scripture that God wants us to have, regardless of what men have done throughout the ages. J.I. Packer writes, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by His work of creation, and similarly, He gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. So we can talk, and we can, we can talk about the errors, and we can talk about grammatical errors, and we can talk about all of the potential problems, but when it comes down to it, and we're defining this thing, the reality is God gave us what God wanted us to have. Why? Because He is he is unchangeable. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is unchangeable. He is timeless. He is eternal. Because He is God. And we believe that the Bible is the standard by which we must live and the place we must go in order to know God. So we believe, as I sum this up with the psalmist, we believe the following. As he said in Psalm 19, 7-11, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Amen? Jason, if you would, if you would just come and lead us in a song. Can we worship in relation to some of the things we talked about briefly? And then Hamlet's going to come and he has something to, to share with us. And let's just celebrate. Let's end our time together in celebrating God.